Welcome to the Third Decade Podcast. I'm Nikita Wolf, and today I'm hosting alongside our lead mentor, Jennifer Edwards. And we're going to be talking about the dilemma between whether it's better to buy or rent, depending on your situation. This is obviously a complicated issue, depending on your finances, as well as a lot of other factors. But we're going to spend some time today talking about specific questions to ask yourself, as well as how to calculate equivalent mortgages in comparison to rent. So Third Decade takes kind of a unique approach to this topic. Um, in our classes, we, we cover uh, you know, why it may not always be a better choice to buy a house over renting. There are pros and cons to both, and we just want to make sure that you're taking into account all the important factors as you make this decision, because there are some hidden costs that come with home ownership that are worth making note of. And so we're just going to basically tackle the myth about whether or not it's always better to buy uh, some of the tax benefits that come with owning and some of the assumptions around that. Yeah, I actually wanted to start with that. That's always the first thing that people hear is that there are tax benefits associated with it. I remember hearing that whenever I bought my house mm-hmm. in 2018 is my family was like, that's great. You're going to get tax benefits. And I was like, I don't think I am, mm-hmm. but I didn't know for sure yet. Are there tax benefits to buying at this point in time? Well, for most people, there there are two trends that have happened over time. If you look, if you kind of turn back the clock on the tax code about 30 years, you would have had high interest rates on the loans themselves, as well as far lower standard deductions. And now we're in a kind of a flip-flop scenario of that, where we have a very high standard deduction and very low interest rates on on the mortgages. So you have to take out quite a bit of debt. You know, you have to have a very large mortgage to pay enough in interest to actually pay more than, you know, to have it be more than what you would be paying on the standard deduction anyway. So the standard deduction right now is like $12,400 for an individual, twice that for a married filing jointly. So you'd actually have to have about $800,000 in mortgage debt. The first year that you have the mortgage is the year that you're going to pay the most in interest. And then it actually diminishes from there. And in that first year, you're you're just barely getting over $25,000 with an $800,000 mortgage. So most people, that's not their starter home. What we want to do is just make sure that you're not buying a home specifically for the tax advantages, because your chances of actually taking advantage of that are, are pretty slim. So right. just know that, you, you know, if you're going to buy a home, it's for other reasons. It's time. You're ready. You're going to, you know, stay put for a while. Um, you've got stable income. You're already funding your other goals consistently. Uh, sure. Yeah. Start building up some home equity, but don't do it because you're like, oh, I want to save on my taxes. Right. And that $800,000 number that we're referencing is for a married filing jointly situation we would cut that number in half for a single individual would be a $400,000 mortgage, still quite the chunk of change to put on a house if you're living on a single income. Yeah. And that's just the mortgage itself. So if you're coming in with money down and your principal is less than the four, that's not the value of the home. Right. Honestly, there are some tax benefits in that you don't have to pay capital gains on any, uh, you know, to a certain level. So that's, it's for a primary residence, it is good to you know, if you buy a house and then 30 years later, it's increased in value and then you sell it, you're not very likely to have to pay capital gains on that 
um, on that increase in the value of the home. But um, if we did have to pay taxes on that, we would keep really close we would keep really detailed records of all of the money that we put into the home because we'd want to know what our basis was. What, what did we, what did the house actually cost us? But because we don't have to, we don't really have to know that number when we sell the house because of the tax advantages there. We don't, we don't keep track of like, you know, every little thing that we put on. Did you, did you, you know, get a hole in the wall and then spackle it up or something like even that little bit right there. Did your fridge go out three months after buying the house and you have to replace it? Right. Or or little, even light switches and doorknobs, you know, anything that's permanent, that's a permanent part of the house that would get sold with it. If you make a change to it or improve it, that would be part of your, what we're going to refer to here as unrecoverable costs. So things mm-hmm. that, um, you know, you don't, you don't get anything back from it when you sell the house. Um, so it's really difficult because there's not a whole lot of data. We're not keeping a lot of records on this. I think it would be an onerous task for us all to keep track of our basis in our homes. Um, so I'm glad that the government doesn't make us do that. But we're going to calculate that as we're, as we're talking about hidden costs to expect that to be around 1% per year of the value of the home. So that's, that's around about averaged because like some years you're going to replace a, a roof and you're going to spend a lot mm-hmm. And then some years you're not going to do that. Some years you're going to replace maybe your HVAC unit and some years you're not, um, you know, things so like that. So is it smart when buying a house to set aside a yearly goal or a monthly contribution to an account that, that at the end of the year is funded 1% of the value of your home so that those expenses don't kind of catch you off guard so much and you're more prepared for them? Sure. Absolutely. I would think of doing that um, just like you do with maybe hopefully your auto expenses. You kind of have a little account where you're like, okay, I don't know if I'm going to need some repairs, but I anticipate because cars need repairs, I'm going to need the same thing with like a home maintenance kind of a fund. And that would be separate from, um, you know, projects that are just for fun. You know, if it's like, I want to do this, but I don't need to, but technically, you know, like updates, I'm going to need to remodel the kitchen just to keep its value. Yeah, that would probably be part of that number. And you'd want to consider keeping an account for that. Right. And I think it's important to note here, we're not even talking about major renovations here. There are some people that buy a fixer upper and they plan to gut it. They plan to redo, you know, the kitchen top to bottom, put in new floors uh, vault the ceilings, you know, whatever it may be. We're talking just normal upgrades mm-hmm. just to keep the house up to date with where trends are in time. Mm-hmm. And and just functional. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So my favorite tool that we've recently incorporated into our curriculum is the 5% rule. Now I'm a total numbers person. So this really resonated with me. Could you tell us more about the 5% rule, Jen? Yeah, it's a really quick calculation to help us understand the total unrecoverable costs of home ownership. There's a YouTube video by Ben Felix where he does a really good deep dive into the reasoning behind this this number. Um, but just basically understand that you know the total unrecoverable costs of home ownership is not just the mortgage payment. So you can't just complete, compare a mortgage payment to a rental payment. And come up with okay, that's if I can rent for less than what I could buy, get a mortgage for. That's that's not actually going to be um, that's not actually going to work out mathematically. There are going to be things that are 
you're still going to have more unrecoverable costs um, on the the homeownership side. So the way that we do this calculation is you take the value of the home that you're considering, you multiply by 5% and then divide by 12. If you can rent for less than that, then renting is probably more economically advantageous. Now, if you flip that to find a home value that is financially equivalent to your current rent payment, take your rental payment, multiply by 12 and divide by 5%. Right. And most people will be a little bit shocked by the difference in those numbers. Um, But that takes into account um, the taxes, the property taxes. Those aren't recoverable costs. Maintenance and what we call cost of capital. So that's the combination of the interest and the opportunity cost of buying real estate over a diversified stock portfolio that we have a really good idea of how that's going to behave over a 30-year period. Right. All right. So now let's talk about debt-to-income ratios. What do you see as the, I'll say, industry standard, and then maybe what third decade would recommend? Well, of course, a lot of this is going to depend on where in the country you live. So some places it's going to be where, you, you, you know, you just can't get into a house without paying, um, you know, a higher mortgage payment. But hopefully for most people, we can kind of keep this relatively low. So the typical mortgage industry standard for conventional loans is a mortgage ratio of 28% of gross monthly income. So that's before taxes and deductions. That's not what you're bringing home. And that's what, you know, that's, those are very different numbers. Um, And then they use a 36% total debt ratio. So your mortgage payment plus any other debts that you have, they're saying really can't be more than 36% of your total gross monthly income. That would include both student loans and car payments, right? Student loans, car payments, any minimum credit card payments. Um, And then when I'm running the calculations with a participant, I'm certainly going to take into account things like if they have uh, a family loan, you know, something that might not show up on a credit report, but they still feel an obligation to pay. I would say, well, that's kind of part of your debt obligation. So let's take that into account when calculating your debt ratio. But the problem that I come across for most of the people in our program with moderate incomes is that it doesn't really leave a lot of room for saving and investing if you're actually borrowing into those limits. So I suggest aiming for more like a 20% housing ratio, and this would be a good good measurement for rent payments as well, and then a total debt ratio of the 28% or less. So again, the way that you would calculate that is take your gross annual income, divide that by 12, times it by 0.2 for 20%, And then try to keep your housing payment lower than that. Um, If you can, you know, that's going to be, that's going to hopefully leave enough room for you to be able to save adequately for retirement and have enough for discretionary spending. Okay. So now as far as some general recommendations go, I have three things that I always emphasize. The first being that before you buy a house, you should have an emergency savings in addition to your down payment. Keeping a minimum of ten to fifteen thousand is a, in general, a pretty good reference for homeowners, especially. And I can speak from personal experience. I talked about this in our episode, uh, the housing decision with Scott. That my first year of homeownership was way more expensive than I had expected. Uh, I had moved in, and the first month I had to replace a gas line, and. 
I, I furnished it with furniture off of Craigslist, but that still added up quite a lot. Um, we had other little things here or there that it was somewhere around $8,000 if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. So all of that's just to say, don't go into a house where you use up all of your savings getting into it. Make sure that your emergency fund stays intact, that it's set aside and that any down payment you have uh, and any furnishing expenses that you're going to have are separate of that entirely. Uh, the second thing that I always emphasize is that I don't recommend buying a house that feels tight in your budget. And the last being don't buy for the amount that you're pre-approved for. Um, speaking personally, when my husband and I bought our house in 2018, we were approved for a mortgage that would have made it hard to afford our basic needs. Um, I still don't understand how or why they did that, but I'm glad that I knew to run those numbers. I'm glad that I already was working with a budget because I was able to plug in what our new mortgage rate would be or what our new mortgage would be, what our taxes and insurance and PMI would be, et cetera. And I was like, we're going to, you know, we're going to go hungry some nights if we actually <laughs> would, <laughs> if we would try for a house that size. Um, and so I ended up buying one for about two thirds of what we were approved for. Um, if that says anything. Mm -hmm. And that would actually kind of, that would kind of line up with not, not doing, you know, the 36% or the 28%, but doing the 20 yeah. or the 28, that's about right. Um, you know, exactly. if, if you're making a standard kind of average income in this country to have enough left over to fund Roth IRAs, in addition to meeting, at least you're getting your minimum, your at least getting the matching contribution from your employer and your 401ks. And then you still want to have some money left over to save for short-term things like car replacement and vacations and things like that. You just can't Definitely. go to the edge of that limit. I guess I might also say, make sure that your investing goals are already being met before you buy and that they can continue to be met before you buy. So if that's maxing out your Roth every year, that's $500 a month per person. Um, Make sure that you don't make your house fit by making other goals um, suffer because of it, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's go over. I, I don't want to. I don't want it to come across <laughs> wrong. We're not saying don't buy a house. <laughs> it, it's just to we get accused more, of that sometimes. <laughs> just to make a more informed decision. So I want to go over some of the benefits of each of them. Let's start, Jen, with the benefits of renting. One of the biggest perks of renting is that you're not responsible for any of the repairs. Yeah. Right? Oh, so, man. So I you, miss the days. Yeah. The days when it would rain and I didn't have to like cry a little inside if my roof started leaking. Mm -hmm. Those days are gone. Yep. Or you just something, something goes wrong and you're like, oh, I don't have any idea how much this is going to cost, but I am not happy about having you know, nobody's excited about having repairs and maintenance come up in their home and you get to just call a landlord and that doesn't, you know, that's a headache that you never have to deal with um, when you're renting. Um, also, you've got, uh, you know, assume that there's going to be an increase in rent every year, uh, but you can kind of plan for that. Hopefully that actually corresponds with maybe an increase in pay. That's the idea. Um, so there's some consistency there without kind of big surprises in terms of expenses. Um, if you can rent for, for less than what your mortgage payment would be, then you can save for retirement more easily. Uh, if you're, if you're saying to yourself, yeah, I'm just going to keep funding my Roth IRA, 
or other investments. And there's also just some flexibility in terms of geography, job changes. If you needed to move, you know, you've got a lease, maybe you could just even pay that off by the end. You know, you don't have to sell a house if you're, if you're deciding to, to relocate somewhere. Right. And if you've got and, a crazy, if you've got a crazy neighbor. Yeah. And you want to leave. Kind of step with them. Yes. <laughs> right. have a few of those. And, and there's, you know, honestly, just a, lo- a lot lower cost of insurance. You're not covering the liability levels of risk that you would be as a homeowner. So, you know, in terms of be sure to factor that in when you're fa- trying to figure out if you can afford, afford to, to buy a home, your insurance is going to be higher. Yeah. Yeah. So as far as some perks of owning, uh, the first one would be a forced savings. So as long as you're not refinancing over and over again and extending your 30 year loan into a 45 year loan (laughs) over the course of time. Um, and, and as long as you don't borrow against your house, eventually your home is an owned asset after 30 years, which you could sell for and, and have, you know, some capital there, or you could Mm -hmm. access that capital and put it into a diversified portfolio at that point, if you needed to. But the idea is not to borrow into it and then just spend it because then you're turning right. you're turning an investment into it's not going to be an investment. Lost anymore. money. Just, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Another thing that a lot of people find valuable is the stability that it provides. You don't move until you really want to move. Um, somebody else doesn't call the shots. You aren't going to be displaced by another tenant who might pay more. Personalization is another perk of owning. You can do whatever you'd like with your house. You can paint the walls any colors you want. You can put a new backsplash in the kitchen or paint your cabinets. Um, You can personalize it as much as you want. Privacy is another benefit that I think people feel when they own. You don't have a landlord unexpectedly showing up to, you know, check out something on the property. Typically, you'll feel like you have a little bit more space to be separate from your neighbors. Um, And lastly, inflation protection. A primary house tends to beat inflation by about 1% to 2% on average over 30 years. So if nothing else comes to mind in this episode, we just we want you to know that you don't have to buy a home to be financially successful. It's really important that we're beating inflation over time, and so we have to be invested. Um, in some cases, you can actually be more financially successful without it if you in- invest that money instead. But eventually we want you to own your primary residence. If, if you, you know, we're just saying that most people actually just get into a house too soon and they buy too much. Right. If you're 28 years old and you're feeling stressed because all of your friends are buying their house and you feel like you're behind, don't let that influence you into thinking that, that you're failing somehow by not owning a house yet, because that is not the case. You can definitely make it work in your favor. Yes. You can retire comfortably and never have been a homeowner, but Mm -hmm. you really can't Um, you know, gone are the days of ubiquitous pensions where you could just focus on paying off your primary residence and then your pension payment plus social security would cover all of your expenses in retirement. That's not going to happen anymore. So um, just understand that you need to be investing in addition to your, your primary residence. And so make sure that you're taking advantage of the growth of a diversified stock portfolio. So thanks for tuning into today's episode. We hope that this was helpful for you and is something that you can share with your friends who might be looking to make this decision in the near future. Let us know how you like our podcast by rating and reviewing it on the platform that you're listening on. And we hope you all have a great week and we'll talk to you soon.